what will opera look like in 10 years? 20 years? It's hard to predict, but one thing is for sure. There's a whole new generation of composers creating new innovations in expression, composition, and performance. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we're diving into opera in the new millennium. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. From its origins in 16th century Italy, and for many centuries following, opera was one of the most popular forms of entertainment. Musical juggernauts from Mozart to Wagner continued to push the meaning of opera into new areas, shaping it into what we know today. But what about today's composers? What are they doing to push opera forward into a new century? I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and in today's episode, we've pulled a series of live event recordings from our archives to share, featuring lecturers Naomi Baratera and Elspeth Davis as they guide us through a two-part survey of contemporary works that are poised to be future classics of the genre. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm Naomi. It's nice to see so many familiar faces and a lot of new faces. If this is your first time at the Met Opera Guild, welcome. And I am Elspeth, and it is very exciting to see so many people here who I hope are really, really interested in the idea of learning more about 21st century opera. Um, I want to beg everybody's indulgence. I am getting over a very bad sinus infection, so I might be coughing a little bit. Please just ignore me. I'm pulling a Mimi today, but I'm not going to die at the end of it, so it should be fine. So the way we're going to structure today's lecture is that Naomi, bless her heart, is going to give everybody a brief overview of the history of Western music in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, possibly 20 minutes. Um, and we're then aiming, we're, gonna, we're aiming for 10. The we're next compromise will be 15. We'll And then we're going to talk about, um, we're each going to take turns talking about specific composers who are doing really interesting things in the world of opera today. So to start with, if we dive right in, those of you who have been in classes with me before know that I love a good timeline. Right. Do not be scared by this. Yes. So you can see that a lot of times when we talk about contemporary music or modern music, we have in the past talked a lot about 20th century music. And so you can see here in this timeline is in your handout that there is a long 100 years between 1900 and 2000 <laughs> where lots and lots and lots happened in, in opera and in classical music. And there were a ton of different eras and styles and genres and evolutions that happened in musical language. So we're going to talk about some of those things, but then you can see that almost all of our composers that we're going to touch on today are on this timeline in our new millennium, so from 2000 to present. So even though we are only 18 years into this new millennium, we have 
I think more composers than ever before are actively composing, and we have a lot of exciting new opera to talk about. So I put as many of them here as I could fit in so that you can see more or less where they fall in relation to other people, because some of these people um, in their works, in their lives, they talk about the influence that some of these other composers that came before them had on them. So I wanted to give you a kind of broad overview of that. But if we're talking about the idea of how did we get to the musical language that we tend to hear in operas today? How did we get to that point? And so to give us a really broad overview, we're going to go on this uh, tour, Naomi's History of Western Music in 10 minutes or less. So <laughs> we begin with tonality. And so tonality is a word that defines and it describes the system of organizing all of the possible musical pitches in Western music into a kind of hierarchical, very organized system. And so tonality is something that really does define Western music. It's not the only way of organizing sound that exists in the world. If you've been to Eastern Asia, if you've been to parts of Russia, if you've been to different parts of Africa, you will encounter completely different tonal systems and completely different ways of organizing sound. So, but in Western music, we have, if you think of a piano, think of all of the black and white notes on a piano, those define basically all of the pitches that are available to you in Western tonal music. And then tonality takes those pitches and it groups them into smaller families, so families of seven pitches. And so that is what a key signature is. It's a family of seven pitches. And those pitches work really well together and they work in a really specific way. And that specific way creates, so the way that the pitches are, uh, the distance that they are from one another, how they sound against each other, how they sound in relation to one another when you skip over a couple of them, all of those relationships give you the sense that when you're writing music, you can go from something very stable sounding as if the pitch is not going to move anywhere. Then you can move towards tension where there's kind of instability. And then you can move back towards stability. And that's kind of what defines tonality in these key signatures. So a C major scale is a tonal key signature. It sounds like this. And when you only use the, the pitches in a major scale, you can write things that sound very homogeneous. You can move away from stability and then back again. So the example I always use, uh, going back to one of my favorite composers, Mozart, is Piano Sonata number 11. This is just the beginning of it. So, and he's only using pitches within a single key signature of A major. from its home or its tonal center. There was a little bit of feeling like it was unresolved or wanted to, the sentence needed to be completed. And then by the time the clip ended, we were back home again. Now, when you add pitches to a piece of music that are outside of your key signature that is dominating or controlling the overall structure, 
That is called chromaticism or chromatic notes. And so if you just add a couple of them here and there, they're kind of like adding little flecks of chili into your soup or into your spaghetti so that you don't always taste it, but if you bite down on one, you're going you're gonna to feel it, right? You're going to taste it. But if you add a lot of them, it's going to completely change the flavor profile of your dish, right? So chromaticism or chromatic notes are the same way. The more notes that you add from outside the key signature, the more unstable something is going to feel. So again, going to Mozart, here's a piece where he adds a couple little chromatic notes here and there. So I'll point out some of the chromatic notes for you as we listen. Chromatic note, chromatic note. couple here and there. So basically from even before the time of Mozart all the way up into the mid-1800s, composers are experimenting with different types of harmonies that add little flavors of chromatic notes. And then along comes Wagner, right? And Wagner changes everything because he <coughs> basically says, I'm going to throw all of the rules of harmony out the window and no matter how dissonant something sounds, no matter how crazy the combination of pitches are in terms of our ideas of tonality and functional harmony and chromaticism, I'm going to put these pitches together if I feel like it's going to create an interesting sound. And so one of the works that is always talked about is Tristan und Isolde as being this groundbreaking work forcing harmony in a new direction. And the Tristan chord is the chord that apparently bowled everybody over in their seats. When we hear it today, it doesn't sound that dissonant to us, but at the time, it was incredibly revolutionary. So this is the Tristan chord, and this is what it sounds like. So that's the Tristan chord and the way, what this did was it again destabilized this idea that you always had to be moving away from and then back to a home pitch in small or a home harmony in small manageable chunks. So for example the opening of Act 3 of Tristan builds on this chord. It's beautiful but it's not the exact, it doesn't sound like Mozart let's say. So here's the opening of Act 3 of Tristan. Okay, so it kind of floats into nowhere, right? Now, breaking the rules of harmony in this way 
inspired composers to try other things that were non-traditional and different. So some composers, like Claude Debussy, who came after Wagner, experimented with the idea that he wasn't, he didn't want to emulate Wagner, he didn't want to be exactly like Wagner, but he thought, what if I use this idea of building building my harmonic structure around blocks of chords that even from one chord to the next, it might not make sense from a traditional harmonic standpoint, but I like the sound of that movement, or I like this kind of ethereal, translucent kind of feel that I can create, and this sense of stasis where the harmony's not really going anywhere particular for the listener, but it sounds beautiful. An example of this is Kallias and Melisande, so here is a little bit of the opening to Act 3 of Pelias to show you the kind of direction that Debussy took with this. beautiful, but you can't really predict where it's going. Then people like Richard Strauss said they wanted to push what Wagner started to the extreme, so not tipping the scales entirely, but making things incredibly chromatic to express a kind of trauma or psychological feeling from the characters in the opera. So if you saw Electra, you experienced a little bit of this. This is a minute or so of um, one of Electra's arias where she is singing Fata Agamemnon, right? So this is Strauss's uh, direction that he takes after Wagner. to the brink and eventually it's like they blew too much air into the balloon and the balloon popped and we got atonality. And so atonality is a way of approaching music where there is no key signature, there is no sense of chromaticism versus what we call diatonicism, which is another word roughly meaning tonality. And so it's basically every pitch is equal, there's no sense of moving from one uh, home stable pitch to an unstable pitch and then back again. And so some people describe it as sounding incredibly chaotic, uh, 
dissonant, that type of thing. But composers at the time that really pioneered this idea, the Second Viennese School, Schoenberg, Webern, and Berg, they had been through World War I. They had experienced incredible trauma in the world. And they were trying to find a musical language that expressed the horror that they felt humanity had experienced. And so they came up with this idea of atonality. And there is one opera that was kind of the first complete atonal opera, and that is Berg's Watzek. century, we have just this explosion of what I call the isms of the 20th century. So I put a lot of these in your handout, but we have expressionism, chromaticism, atonalism, experimentalism, indeterminism or aleatoric music, uh, minimalism, atonalism, serialism, postmodernism, octatonicism, pentatonicism. There's more than just this. There's spectralism, all these kinds of things. So. Composers have this freedom to try any and all approaches to writing music, and they experiment in wildly different ways. Uh, to the point I picked one of my favorite examples to show you just how radically composers departed from the norm with minimalism and Philip Glass. So if you've ever seen Einstein on the beach, you might recognize this little clip. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And this was kind of like the quintessential groundbreaking <coughs> minimalist opera. They kind of glass and uh, Robert Wilson and then also composers like John Adams kind of defined this era of minimalism in the 70s and 80s. We have moved on from minimalism. So even Philip Glass has said that he is not confined to the strict ideas of minimalism. Minimalism essentially said we're going to strip music down to tiny cells of an idea and repeat them in a, in, think of almost like pointillistic painting, right? Repeat them and then slowly change one tiny little thing and then repeat that. And then change one other tiny little thing and then repeat that. And the effect of the repetition paired with the subtle change creates these incredible long and 
glorious works where when you go to a Philip Glass performance of Einstein on the Beach, I remember a friend was telling me about it once and they said it was great. It was like 10 minutes of this one chord and then he changed one thing and it was just like mind-blowing. Right? <laughs> and so there is an attraction to this sound. So I like to think of now, since we're past the 70s and 80s, Composers today have this huge toolbox of compositional ideas that they can play with. They don't have to just write atonal music. They don't have to just write tonal music. They don't have to just do indeterminate pieces. They can mold these things together and transition between them and play with juxtaposing them against each other. So my last example in our grand tour is Thomas Addis. Uh, this is a clip from The Tempest, which I think shows you a composer going from extreme dissonance and atonality, juxtaposing that immediately against this beautiful pseudo-tonal sounding moment that has this uh, very calming effect in comparison to the beginning of the clip. So here is just a little bit from The Tempest. This is the aria, Friends Don't Fear. wonderful moment where given all the technology that we have today, composers have access to all of these different styles, all of these different ideas that came before them, and they can fuse those ideas with their own ideas and create even new and different things. Every time you think classical music has hit some kind of stumbling block where it's not evolving anymore, a composer will come along and prove you wrong. And I think Elspeth and I, when we were talking yesterday, she had a great Sondheim quote about this. <laughs> so I am obsessed with Stephen Sondheim. I do think he's the greatest living composer. You in the back, you got me. Um, and so I don't know if anybody read it, but they did this big interview with him in the New York Times, I think, last week. It was Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton, interviewed Stephen Sondheim. Um, and he was talking about uh, his compositional style and what it's like working as a composer today. And, you know, when he was a child, they lived next door to Oscar Hammerstein, and so he became a mentor for him. And he wrote a bunch of music, and he gave it to Oscar. I'm going to just call him by his first name. Um, <laughs> And he gave them back, and he was like, do you want me to tell you honestly what I think? And he said, yes, please. And he's like, these are terrible because you are writing music and you're giving me words that you think I want to hear and that you think people want to hear. What you need to do is give me your experience and your perspective. And I think that sort of sums up what postmodernism is. Like um, the quote from Sunday in the Park with George, anything you do, let it come from you, and then it will be new. And that's sort of what this is. So composers these days, there is this feeling of pushing boundaries. But I think that can be said of any composer in history. I mean, look, 
a lot of people hated Beethoven when Beethoven was a composer, and now, you know, we love him. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it is all about pushing boundaries and finding ways that speak to you and how you compose music and how you innovate and things like that. So in the rest of our time together, Elspeth and I have kind of divvied up. We had a really hard time picking composers that kind of made the final cut. And already yesterday, we were saying, oh, some of this has to go because we just don't <laughs> have time. And so we've gone through and chosen composers that we think are really doing amazing and interesting and innovative things right now with focusing on works post-2000. And we're going to talk about a little bit about their history or bios as composers, but really focusing on musical style and what to listen for, what we find really fascinating or interesting or beautiful or captivating about the particular clips that we've chosen. So first up, using Thomas Addis is our jumping off point. Mm -hmm. And so everybody here probably knows that the Exterminating Angel is coming up on the season here at the Met. It's making its premiere very, very soon. And so Thomas Addis, his opera is actually the only opera on the Met season written post-1925 or something like that, because Turandot is the only other opera mm -hmm. that is uh, that late, per se. And so Thomas Addis is from Great Britain, and he has a history of going to kind of conservatory-like schools. He was very nurtured from a young age in music, studied at King's College in Cambridge, and his mother was an artist. She studied surrealist paintings. He was very comfortable with that whole kind of artistic era, which played into his interest in the story and source material of The Exterminating Angel. And he is composed in basically every major musical genre, symphonic works, chamber music, choral works, uh, some solo pieces. He has three major operas, and Exterminating Angel is the most recent of those. And the first one was actually in 1995 called Powder Her Face. And it did so well when it premiered that since 1995 until today, it's had over 40 new productions of that particular opera, which is pretty incredible. His second opera was The Tempest, based on the Shakespeare play that came here to the Met. He made a, quite a mark with The Tempest when it came out. It was in the 2012-2013 season. And so when we talk about his style, and you're thinking, well, what does Addis sound like? A lot of people compare him to Albin Berg. And of the three Viennese, second Viennese school composers, Albin Berg was the most concerned with making atonal music, which can be really dissonant and jarring, and making it as tonal sounding as possible without being tonal. That was kind of his take on the whole style because he wanted it to be somewhat accessible and inviting to audiences. And so people compare Addis to Berg, but he's not entirely atonal. And he describes his own style, and this is the wonderful thing about composers living, they can talk about their own music. <laughs> he describes his own style as irrational functional harmony. So the idea that he's still drawing on some functional harmony or tonal ideas, but twisting them and manipulating them in kind of irrational ways or different ways. Another quote that I think describes his music really well is that his music reverberates with the past but doesn't replicate it. 
It shimmers with sounds that are weirdly familiar, yet are also unlike anything you've heard before. So as an example of this connection to the history of Albin Berg and the Second Viennese School, we're going to listen to two very short clips. The first is a piano sonata by Albin Berg that is a completely atonal piece. And then we're going to listen to a piano solo composed by Thomas Addis. It's from his Three Mazurkas. And in both cases, you have a kind of atonal sound, but the rhythm of the pieces kind of hold the whole structure together so there's still familiar elements to hook your ear onto. And they're both really beautiful, but in very unconventional ways. So first, Albin Berg's Piano Sonata, Opus 1. And here is Thomas Addis's Mazurka. between the two, but there is, it's not replicating that style, but it certainly comes from that. So The Exterminating Angel is the opera that is on the season based on the Bunuel film of the same name, and it was, the film is from 1962. And so this particular opera made its world premiere not that long ago, 2016, at the Salzburg Festival, and has since been done by the Royal Opera, and is now making its Met premiere. And the harmonic language in this opera, from everything I've heard of it, is a little bit more tonal and a little bit more accessible than The Tempest, but it is still that kind of juxtaposition between moments of extreme dissonance and then moments of respite. But what really sets this opera apart from anything Addis has done before really is the orchestration. There is a lot of strange instruments for an opera orchestra, in this score. So he actually has a group of eight miniature violins. And uh, we heard a story from one of the orchestra members the other day that the miniature violins were playing in rehearsal and Addis is conducting this himself. And he kept saying to them, I need more volume from you. I need more volume. And they say, the, the violin is this big. It's literally that big. You can play one note at a time, I think. Right? Yes. Yeah. So, Trying to balance these eight miniature violins is uh, a struggle in the large opera house. But then he also has a solo guitar. He has a lot of bells in the score, a lot of strange percussion instruments. He also has uh, the Onde Martineau, uh, which looks like this. It looks like a keyboard instrument, but it's actually a really early electronic instrument. And it kind of sounds like a theremin 
or when, you know, if anyone's been in Union Square subway station, there's a lady who plays the saw. It sounds a little bit yeah. like that. So these kind of pitches that are eerie and it's kind of bendable sounding, uh, very otherworldly. And he talks about how he uses this particular instrument as a kind of force in the opera because the plot in a nutshell is that a group of 22 friends, and there's 22 singers, gather for a dinner party and they soon realize they're actually unable to leave the house. And so it's kind of a Lord of the Flies situation where society devolves and they end up, you know, building fires out of furniture and that type of thing. And uh, one couple decides that they don't want to die locked in this house, so they commit suicide in the wardrobe. Um, at one point, there's a sheep that wanders through, and they decide to kill it and roast it over a spit for survival, right? And so in this, Addis talks about how the Onde Martineau functions as like a sonic force field representing in music this unknown force that's keeping all of these people inside the house. And so whenever you hear them reference the idea that they can't leave, or whenever a character enters the house and then is unable to leave, you hear the Onde Martineau kind of jump in as this sonic, unnamed, uh, supernatural force. And so to just give you a taste of what the opera sounds like, because there's not a whole lot of clips of it available yet, uh, this is a little bit of a duet between the two lovers in Act 2, and this is actually after they've committed suicide in the wardrobe and they kind of come back in a, like a spiritual uh, type thing. And in this, Addis talks about how he wanted to create a kind of dovetailing effect between their two vocal lines so that it's like a tautological circle of them uh, kind of singing together in a duet but always following one after the other. So this is a little bit of the Exterminating Angel from Act 2. That's a little taste of the exterminating angel. So and now I'm going to hand things over to Elspeth for our next composer. And I don't, just to point this out, um, because I thought it was interesting, if you notice the, the tenor 
Um, I don't know if anybody saw it, but he kept like moving his hands, which looked like a nervous tick, but he's totally counting with his fingers. Um, and <laughs> you can see it in the pianist's face when it zooms in on him. It just makes me laugh really hard because he looks really stressed out. Um, <laughs> it is that uh, these, uh, the cast of Exterminating Angel is the cast for all of the productions, um, with mm -hmm. the exception of Alice Coote in this, who's taking over for Anne-Sophie von Otter, who I don't think travels to this country. Yes. Um, so they have been working on this for years and years and years. And when you're working on something that's kind of um, off the beaten path and contemporary, if there are sections that are in 4-4 or 3-4 or something really standard like this was, it's really stressful because um, you're not used to counting in like a normal way anymore. And so <laughs> like I remember I, um, I gave a, a concert and it was like, hits of opera so we were doing things like the trio from cozy and we started the rehearsals and all of a sudden i opened my mouth and i was like i don't know how to sing in thirds anymore <laughs> like this makes no sense to me whatsoever so your brain just sort of readjusts to what you're doing and it's hard to get back into something that seems relatively simple but is not but anywho <laughs> George Benjamin. <laughs> okay, so George Benjamin is sort of the reason why I really, really wanted to do this. Um, he was born in 1960 in London. And one of the interesting things about George Benjamin is that when he was 16, he uh, moved to Paris for a year to study at the Paris Conservatoire with Messiaen. So he lived in Paris for a year and would go to like Messiaen's house with a couple of other students and they would work like 50 hours a week. Um, and Messian went on the record saying that Benjamin was his absolute favorite pupil. Um, and Benjamin has gone on the record saying that this relationship that we had with Messian is one of the most important ones of his career and defined who he is as a composer. Um, so after going to Paris for a year, he came back to London, studied at King's College. And while he was there, he wrote this piece called Rings of the Flat Horizon. Um, and that was in 1980, and it actually got performed and premiered at the BBC Proms. He wrote it in March, it got premiered in August. And to this day, uh, he was 20 at the time, so to this day, he is still the youngest composer to ever have a piece performed at the BBC Proms. Um, so after the age of 20, uh, his, basically from ages 20 to 50, his sort of compositional output really, really petered off. Uh, he taught composition at King's College for a very long time, so it's entirely possible that I think he taught Thomas Addis. Um, but he had a reputation for being um, really, really slow uh, with the way he wrote music. It would take him years and years to write maybe 15 to 20-minute uh, pieces. And because of this, he sort of got this reputation as being um, a miniaturist, the kind of composer who I think Alex Ross referred to it as tiny little musical jewel boxes, it was the kind of thing that he wrote, not the kind of music that just sort of like grabs you and, and shakes you, not like a, a Puccini or a Verdi kind of thing. However, all of that changed um, with an opera that he wrote that got premiered at Aix en Provence in 2012 called Written on Skin. Um, did anybody see it? Because it actually came to, oh my god, we're going to talk about it later. It was one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen. So it came to New York in uh, 2014. And it also premiered at the Royal Opera House in 2013 and then in Paris uh, later in that year. And the libretto is by a playwright named Martin Crane. And it is much like uh, the opera uh, La Mort de Luan by Kaya Saria Ho, based on the story of a 12th century troubadour. 
And the title refers to the fact that at this period of time, any books that were written were written on animal skin that was used as the paper. That's what the title comes from. So in this opera, there's a rich landowner, the baritone. He's only known as the protector, and he commissions a young artist known as the boy to write an illuminated book to celebrate his power. This, of course, is something that only rich people would do because nobody else could afford it at that time. The book and the artist spark a rebellion of the protector's submissive wife, who was known through most of the opera as the woman. But when she comes into her own, she is given, her na given a name, which is Agnes. Agnes compels the boy to depict their relationship in his illuminations. So the protector, of course, sees this, and understanding what's going on, he kills the boy and serves his heart to his wife. And she eats it unwittingly, and when he tells her what it is, she defiantly says that she will never eat again or drink so that she can preserve her lover's taste in her mouth. And then she leaps to her death rather than be killed by her husband. Ah, okay. <laughs> so this seems like it wouldn't be a really great topic for a composer. Well, no, for an opera. I mean, this is a great opera topic. Um, for a composer with a, a reputation for uh, a really fastidious attention to detail, he's often compared a lot to Britain. I think it's just a little unfair. I feel like most composers, if they're British, get compared to Britain. But the opera is structured very rigidly. It's divided into 15 scenes, about 90 minutes, no intermission. And the way this production is set up is there actually are a trio of three singers who are known as the angels. And all around, you see this is the uh, protector's house, but all around it is this very stark laboratory. And the opera starts with the three angels piecing together this illuminated manuscript that's been dug up. And slowly, they start figuring out what the story is, and then they, they get drawn into it themselves, and they become characters in the piece. So this music, obviously, it has still that attention to detail that Benjamin is known for. But on top of this is this really lush, really sweeping, very erotic kind of music. And it is the kind that just grabs you. It reminds me a lot, I mean, not musically, but it does remind me a lot of something like Tosca. You know, something that's just like so emotional that the audience is immediately just uh, sucked into it. Uh, George Benjamin said that this opera took him 26 months to write, which for him is actually pretty short. <laughs> and one of the things I love most about this opera is the language. The text is very, it's very evocative. It's very descriptive. It's one of those things where the audience really needs to lean in and pay attention to understand what is going on. Uh, for example, there's one scene where the protector and the woman are lying in bed together, and he knows that she's pretending to be asleep, and he knows this because he can hear her eyelashes scraping against the pillow like the wings of insects. Ha! Um, I could talk about this forever because it is one of like the top three things that I've seen in my entire life, um, but I do just want to play you some clips. Um, we got a lot of because I couldn't bear it down any further. Um, so in this first scene, it's a scene where the woman goes to the boy, and he's writing the book, and she asks him uh, to show her how a book is made. Obviously, at this period in time, a woman would have never seen a book. A woman, a woman would never have been taught how to read. Uh, so he shows her a miniature that he's drawing of Eve, and she laughs at it. She challenges him to make a picture of a real woman like herself, a woman with precise and recognizable features, a woman that he, the boy, could desire. So we'll take a look at that. Uh, this is Barbara Hannigan and um, Benjamin Mehta as the woman and the boy. 
Notice in that that um, the characters will refer to themselves in the first and third person to describe the actions that they are doing. Everybody throughout this, and you really would think it serves to distance the audience from what's going on, but I think it really enables people to lean in closer and understand what's happening. Um, and it's just used as a uh, framing device because these are all sort of allegorical characters with the exception of Agnes when she sort of discovers her womanhood. Uh, so, in this uh, next scene, this happens the same night where the boy comes to the woman and he says, look, I did what you asked and I made this image. At first she says that she doesn't know what he's talking about, but then she recognizes the image, which is of a woman asleep in her bed, and it's a portrait of her. As they examine the picture herself, the tension grows until Agnes offers herself to the boy. So we're going to watch a little bit of that now. She catch, click, shot the black rectangle of the door. <laughs> 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 
asks the boy, she says, if you love me, you would uh, depict our relationship in this book. And he, 
he does it and he gives it to the, the protector and the protector reads it um, and then he brings in his wife and he sits her down and he reads it to her and he's obviously getting more and more upset because his wife cheated on him, his property with this boy and, and everything. He's getting angrier and angrier her and she is getting more and more ecstatic and she's ignoring everything that's happening and the scene sort of culminates with her this amazing scene where she turns to him and she's like, show me, show me the word for love.
What the woman? What Agnes? What your wife? This opera is so popular, in the last six months, there have been over 80 productions of this opera in the world. And it's so popular that the Royal Opera House has commissioned Benjamin and his librettist, Martin Crimp, to write another opera. It's called Lessons in Love and Violence, and it is the story of Elizabethan um, King, who is forced to choose between love and political power, and that also stars uh, Barbara Hannigan, who was the woman in this. So that is... <laughs> written in skin really, really quickly. Yes. <laughs> so, Naomi. All right, so our next composer is actually going to be here with us this afternoon yep. uh, on our panel, and that is Kevin Putz. And if you, so far you're thinking, wow, a lot of this music is a little out there for me. Mm -hmm. The best way to describe Kevin's music is that he is the most tonal contemporary composer on the landscape today, I would say. And so people tend to talk about how his music is contemporary, but it's not necessarily super modern sounding in the way that we think of incredibly modern music with Thomas Addis or even George Benjamin. So he is on the other side of the scale in terms of harmony and tonality. 
And so to just give you an idea of this beautiful tonal landscape that he's in, I wanted to play just a minute of Symphony Number no. 2 for you, which is one of his orchestral works, so you can get a sense of the harmonic language, and then we'll talk about some of his operas. So here is just the opening of Symphony Number no. 2, and if you want, you can just close your eyes and let the sweet, sumptuous harmonies <laughs> kind of wash over you. sounding harmony and so I think a lot in terms of his style I really think it's like he likes these clusters of harmonies that are really consonant and they kind of shift slowly from one uh, cluster to another it's almost like these pillows of consonant harmonies that then the melodies are floating on top of and everything is really sweet sounding I think that's the best way to describe it with him. He has this kind of sweetness and gentleness to all of the music that he writes. Now he did talk about how he, he has said, and this is a quote from him, I was intellectually drawn to some atonal music when I was in school. I was fascinated by the complexity of it all and there is a place for that sound and sometimes I find a place for it in my music but I cannot escape tonality. It's so fundamental to me. It is the basis for what I do. And so he's been compared to composers like Sibelius, Prokofiev, Mahler, even Bach, and also Charles Ives, which seems like an extremely wide <laughs> spectrum of composers to be compared to. And what I think is really striking in his music, because he's so rooted in tonality, that when there are moments of dissonance, it's really striking, and it really has a kind of dramatic punch to it, because it's not dominating the entire piece. So... He really did get 
uh, kind of put on the map or made a huge mark with his opera Silent Night, so much so that it won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize. And so it is an opera that when you first hear it, you're just completely struck by the beauty of it. And there's gorgeous choral writing, that kind of sweet pillow of sound is a large part of this opera. It is about that truce in World War I when at Christmas Eve, when the two opposing sides in the trenches called a truce and they actually played soccer between the trenches and things like that. And so that's what the whole story of the opera is about. So again, it kind of draws right from a kind of historical moment that has meaning for people in this particular generation. And he has also said that he is obsessed with Mozart, which I think is really interesting. And he said that, I go through times when I ask myself, how can I make my music more clear and fresh, like Mozart's? It's not that I want to plagiarize, but I'm always looking for ways to create that kind of spirit and beauty, a balance and a perfection and a leanness of sound, and the instinctual knowledge upon listening that everything is there for a reason. So we're going to see a little extended preview of Silent Night. This is from Opera Philadelphia, and this is kind of a composite of several scenes that Opera Philadelphia put together to give you a taste of the opera kind of from different moments or snapshots within it.
writing so Silent Night is not his most recent opera his most recent opera actually just made its world premiere not long ago and that is Elizabeth Cree and so I'm gonna play you just one minute or so from the beginning of this duet because I think you also hear in this this kind of cushion of consonant sound underneath the melodies of the singers that really has a kinship with that choral moment in Silent Night that's really, really beautiful. So this is a duet moment from Elizabeth Cree. I can promise you a life without worry, a life without care. I can promise you freedom from need, freedom from want. to move to our next composer. Missy Mazzoli. She also will be here this afternoon. So yes, if you have questions, for this afternoon. So Missy was born in Pennsylvania in 1980. Um, and she comes actually from an indie rock music background. Um, she has traveled with the National and with um, My Brightest Diamond. Is it My Brightest Diamond? My Sharpest Diamond? I think My Brightest I think it's My Brightest yeah. Diamond. <laughs> with her band called Victoire, which she has released a couple of albums with. Um, she also has collaborated with people like Glenn Coach, who is the drummer for Wilco. Um, she has been referred to in the press as the uh, Brooklyn's post-millennial Mozart. What that means, I don't really know, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and she has, um, uh, she has composed a great deal, but obviously today we're going to focus on her first full-length opera, Breaking the Waves, which premiered uh, in 2016 with Opera Philadelphia and then came to the Prototype Festival earlier this year. And Breaking the Waves is based on a 1996 film called Breaking the Waves by Lars von Trier, which, oof, um, love him, hate him, he's there. Um, and it's the story of uh, Beth McNeil, who is this uh, woman who lives in um, the remote Isle of Skye, 
Scotland in the 1970s. And she undergoes a sort of sexual awakening when she marries a man named Jan Nyman, who is a handsome oil rig worker. Um, but he goes off and works on the rig so much that she has a moment where she asks God. She feels like she can speak to God. She sees herself sort of as a modern Joan of Arc. She asks God to send Jan back to her. And then she finds out that there was an accident. Jan broke his neck and he's paralyzed. Um, and after he's paralyzed by the accident, he actually presses her uh, to have sex with other men and tell him about the experience as he isn't able to perform sexually and he's suffering mentally. She does, and this sets her on the road to ruin in their deeply religious community. As Bess becomes more and more deviant in her sexual behavior, the more she comes to believe that her actions are guided by God and are helping Jan recover. Her reputation catches up to her. Uh, she doesn't really understand why, and her fervent resolve to save Jan is only renewed. Bess finds herself aboard a large commercial ship where she is savagely raped and mutilated by a group of sailors. And her body is delivered to the hospital, and she dies in the arms of her sister-in-law. As Jan wakes up from a surgery, his health dramatically improved. And that's how it ends. Opera news. <laughs> and it was a lot. I thought of the Prototype Festival. It's, it's a lot. Opera News wrote that Breaking the Wave stands out among the best 21st century American operas yet produced. Uh, the Wall Street Journal wrote, um, Mr. Vavrick, Va Royce Vavrick is the librettist. His spare, eloquent libretto leaves ample space for Miss Mazzoli's music to create a complex portrait of Bess and her stark environment. Miss Mazzoli's score deftly balances trenchant arias with a kaleidoscopic orchestration whose layers and colors suggest Messian, Britain, and Janacek, but it is finally all her own. Um, the opera was actually nominated for the 2017 International Opera Award for Best World Premiere, um, and it won the award for Music Critics Association of North America for Best Opera in 2017. Opera Philadelphia actually paid for Missy to go to Scotland to research this opera, but she says that the music from this opera is really inspired by uh, the brutal landscape of Scotland. If you've ever been to Scotland, and specifically the Isle of Skye, it's a very intense, sort of craggy, verdant landscape with crashing waves, and the music is really uh, based on that. As this opera premiered last year, there aren't actually a lot of clips available, but we do ha uh, happily have this one. Um, this is Bess's aria from Breaking the Waves called His Name is Jan, and in this scene, she's asking the church elders for permission to sort of marry outside their community. And unfortunately, I couldn't find a clip of this, but you'll see them in here, this sort of chorus of men all in these very long black coats. And they act as the church elders, they act as the oil riggers, the sailors, they play all of the minor characters. But in the moments where Bess is talking to God, they sort of gather around her in this weird swarm and they sing in this very tight-knit harmony as God in her head. And it is one of the craziest, most amazing things that I have ever heard. But unfortunately, there is no clip of that. Um, <laughs> so this is a soprano, Kira Duffy, one of the things Missy talks about was very exciting for her is that every production of this opera so far um, has been with this cast. And this opera was written for these specific singers. Mm -hmm. um, one thing to listen for, there's a motive in this that gets repeated throughout the opera. Um, it's it's titled the aria. Well, she goes, his name is Jan, 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 Jan from the rig, um, which is something that she will sing constantly throughout the opera. And actually, it's the last thing she sings as she's dying. I want to be his wife, Mrs. Yan, Mrs. Yan, from the 
Missy and the librettist Royce Fabric are working on a new opera called Proving Up that is going to be premiered next year at Washington National and will be coming here at the uh, Miller Theater at Columbia University, I believe, in November of next year. All right, so our next composer is also going to be here this afternoon, so she will complete our trio yep. of guest composers on our panel, and that is Paola Prestini. And before I tell you anything about her, what I wanted us to do was for everyone to actually close your eyes this time, <laughs> and we're going to listen to the first few minutes of her 2014 work called Oceanic Verses, and then I'm gonna talk about her style and kind of why I chose to start with this one because this is actually one of the first things that I heard from her and it absolutely captivated me. So this, everyone close your eyes and we're just going to take in the first few minutes of this particular work.
captivated me about Paola's music from the first time I heard it was this idea of soundscape that she creates, how you don't even need to see anything on stage. All of the storytelling is really built right into the music. And if there's one thing that you hear about and read about in relation to Paola Prestini, it is that she is innovative. Innovative, innovative, innovative is what you hear and read about with her. And her music has this kind of meshing together of a huge variety of influences. So Oceanic Verses was written uh, in 2014 when she was, uh, she had traveled to Italy and she was kind of inspired by the idea of migration and people uh, being displaced and kind of connections to home kind of the sound of home and the sound connections to where people have been and where they are going. And so in it, you hear references to Italian folk music. You have this kind of soundscape that she creates of the sound of the street or of radios in the background. And when you listen to this, and I've never seen it performed, but I was listening and it's just, it's like a feast for the ears that takes you on this journey. And so all the other work that I've heard by her has this same kind of quality where it's mixing together melodies, solo singing, choral singing, uh, solo instruments, large kind of cushions of sound underneath as well, in interesting ensembles. So she does really interesting things with percussion instruments and bringing together these kind of very disparate influences into a very theatrical type of experience. She's actually the founding CEO and artistic director of National Sawdust in Brooklyn, which is a really beloved performance space now. And she has her own production company that she formed in order to create some of these works. And she does a lot of things that are, by many definitions, kind of non-traditional in a kind of vocal operatic performance medium because she likes to blend multimedia elements and performance uh, kind of art elements with traditional musical storytelling. And so it's often like a conglomeration of various things. The Hubble Cantata is hers, uh, which you might have heard of. She collaborated with Beth Morrison Projects, and it was like this amazing outdoor sonic experience where you had uh, virtual reality goggles that you would wear and watch uh, images and video taken from the Hubble telescope while you're listening to her music. And then there was narration uh, over top of it talking about the cosmos and that sort of thing. So just these really fascinating experiential type of operatic works. And so in a lot of ways, I think she defies the traditional definition of opera in many ways throughout her work. So the most recent opera that she has composed and uh, made its premiere fairly recently is Aging Magician. And this is really interesting because it's an opera for solo tenor and children's chorus. And the Brooklyn's children's chorus are, are the group that sang in its premiere. And so it, and then the set itself has all of these kind of instruments built into the set pieces that the tenor will play at different parts in time. So in a way, the tenor is also sort of part of the orchestra and a performer in the orchestra. So right away, it's just a fascinating concept. And so, and the whole story revolves around a magician who, or this man who wants to pass on his craft to the next generation and he's looking for an apprentice to do that. 
So we're going to watch a trailer, and actually Paula sent us this exact clip so that we could see a little bit more of the work. But if you look her up on Vimeo, large scenes of this opera, the whole opera, you can watch it on Vimeo. So you can get the whole thing from beginning to end. But this will give you a sense, in similar to what we did with Silent Night, of different snippets from Aging Magician. That was lecturers Naomi Baratera and Elspeth Davis giving us a quick overview of some of the works that are shaping the operatic landscape. To learn more about these and other contemporary works, please visit metguild.org and make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, the Metropolitan Opera, and Opera News on all our social media platforms. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.